Luke chapter 2, we come to tonight, the Christmas story, what we naturally think of as the Christmas story. I'd be willing to bet that as a family, when you sit down around the Christmas tree and try to get your kids to pay a few minutes of attention to something else rather than what they're about to open, this is probably the passage you go to. I think I've mentioned before, this is the passage where Linus comes out to Charlie Brown on stage when Charlie Brown says, can somebody tell me what Christmas is all about? And Linus comes out and he begins to quote Luke chapter two. Familiar to us, perhaps tonight there'll be some ways that you say, hmm, never thought about that, never looked at that this way, but may the Lord do what only he can through his word tonight. Let's read it together. Luke chapter two, I'm actually gonna go ahead and read the whole passage here at once. We're gonna go verses one through 20. So go ahead and take a deep breath, and, uh, and we're going to dive right through 20 verses in a row. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with, an angel, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told them. Father, would you speak as only you can into our hearts, our lives, and through your word in the power of your Holy Spirit tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 2, we come to, I've got on your handout here tonight a few spaces for you. There are some handouts still here at the front. Uh, if anybody needs one, you can feel free to come, uh, come and get one. But got a few things tonight for you. We're going to dive right into Luke's details about the Christmas story here in chapter 2. The familiar, perhaps the less familiar, uh, and all those kind of things. Let me show you a picture right off the bat. Here is a Roman statue bust of Caesar Augustus. His name, Octavian, before he became known as Caesar Augustus. Augustus meaning the revered or the exalted. And so Caesar Augustus, he actually, when he took power, became a Caesar that ushered in an era of peace. There was so much chaos leading up to him becoming Caesar that there was stability finally when there was an emperor for the empire. And Caesar Augustus became known as the emperor of peace. 
Isn't that interesting that it's during the reign of supposedly the emperor of peace, still at a time where an empire ruled uh, a vast amount of people, many of them they kept in subjection, slavery, persecution, that in that so-called era of the emperor of peace, the prince of peace made his arrival during the Caesar of peace, Augustus. There's almost this play on, on the words here. Luke does not mention the word peace, but you couldn't bring up Caesar Augustus's name without people thinking about, oh yeah, those were the good old days. Those were the days where it seemed like the wars finally died down for a little while. And so the king of peace, the prince of peace himself would be born in the reign of Caesar Augustus. Here's some gold coins. I believe these are the only gold coins from Caesar Augustus that are in the United States. And so I believe they're at Yale University. If you ever go by, you can see them coins from the actual time. And then here's an inscription. There are stones all around uh, ancient discoveries of, of this, this time period in the world that are the Acts of Augustus, things that got written down. My uh, daughter's just stepped into writing five paragraph essays in school. Can you imagine writing an essay on a piece of stone and having to haul it in to your teacher uh, to turn it in? It's a difficult way to write back then for some things, but when you write it in stone, it lasts forever. Here's uh, a showing of a large amount of these inscriptions all just lined up uh, at a place. Um, let's see, this is uh, in Turkey where they actually have a lot of these acts of Augustus that have been saved. So somebody who uh, came to be known as someone who was, was a, an emperor of peace, a well-known person from history, but at the same time, in no way the same peace that we see the Lord Jesus providing. That Jesus provides peace in the midst of the storm for his children. Caesar Augustus provided peace with an iron fist, and if you're not going to be about peace, we'll snuff out your life. Uh, kind of scenario, a very different world. But the Prince of Peace made his arrival during the Caesar, supposedly, of peace. And in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Uh, the King James, I believe, uses the word taxed because that was the ultimate destination of what registration was, right? They didn't register just for statistics, not just for handouts at the Roman business meeting so they could say how many people they had. The goal of this was ultimately to get taxation. And so either word can be correct if you understand sort of both things, that they were going to register all the people because when you can register people, then all of a sudden you can uh, have an authority over them to collect something that might not be so easy if you don't have the, the data to do so. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. You know, Luke gives us several points of understanding for when the time period was that Jesus was born. And when you compare Luke and Matthew, when you've got names like Caesar Augustus and you've got Quirinius, um, Matthew tells us about Herod's reign. What's interesting is that we, uh, if you enjoy this sort of thing, is that we know that Herod, who sought to kill Jesus, baby Jesus, and his uh, uh, Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt, you remember, and then until Herod's death, when they returned and settled in Nazareth. We know um, from historical documents, from our historical understanding, that Herod died actually in 4 BC. Now, if you start thinking and you do the math, what we, what we found out sometime later is a man named Dionysus who came up with our current calendar system was off just a little bit on when Jesus was born. So actually, Jesus was born sometime between 4 and 6 BC or 4 to 6 years before himself, if you want to take it real ironically in the, the calendar system. 
but it's a reminder of just how much we don't exactly perfectly know. I had a, a book at one time that I'd gotten at a yard sale called The, uh, the Life and Times of Adolf Hitler. I'm, a, I'm not a Hitler fan, but I am a World War II fan. Somebody who knew me picked that up at a yard sale and gave it to me. It was about this thick, you know, for this book. Every point of data you could ever want to know on somebody, they, they listed out everything. And you compare what we know about some people in modern history with what we know and then what we are left to wonder about different pieces of uh, in the Gospels. We are never told an exact chronological age for the Lord Jesus other than that he was a man in his 30s or a man uh, being about 30 years of age. There's some level of mystery there. But regardless of what the exact number is, we know clearly from Scripture that Jesus' earthly age doesn't matter nearly as much as an understanding of his eternal age that he has been present with the Father from the very beginning. And so if we're not careful, we get lost in the weeds or when someday our grandchildren or our children or maybe for some of you in here, you know, you step into a college classroom and different things start coming up and you say, well, actually the dating system was this or that. Well, all that's just outside weeds. You know, the Bible doesn't give some of those things, uh, but there are things that, that perhaps well-meaning people haven't had the full details on. Uh, at certain points throughout history. So if you want to start an interesting discussion when you don't know what else to talk about, you can bring that up uh, to your friends at some point. But all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David. So there's usually, if you were going to go from Nazareth to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem, you know, you would sort of go through Jerusalem to get to Bethlehem. There's usually one of two routes that you would take. Now, to give you an idea of how we know usually the routes that people would take, here's the uh, topography of where you would go. Let's see, we can either go around the mountain or we can go over the mountain. Mary, I know you're seven months pregnant, but I thought it might be nice to go up to the mountain. You okay with that today? Well, okay, we'll go around. We won't do that. So we don't know exactly, but typically the traditional route was around Mount Gilboa. So you, if you want to go into the hilly country and go to Samaria, you can. Otherwise, you're going to swing around and go that way and head towards uh, Bethlehem. Interestingly enough, this is what Bethlehem looks like now. Very different than what Bethlehem looked like, no doubt, in Mary and Joseph's day. There was a painting done in the 1800s of Bethlehem for what the, uh, the town looked like then. That's a far cry from that, isn't it? So actually in the year, let's see, this is 1839. Bethlehem looked very much more than likely what it did even in Jesus' day. And, uh, and you've got here an, an idea of a small town. Sometimes the Bible uses the word city because the Greek word polis can mean different things, but a city in our understanding and from our frame of reference would be very different. This is a village, this is a town of Nazareth, a small place, uh, excuse me, Bethlehem, uh, a small place, a somewhat forgotten place except for its notoriety as being the, the town of David, the city of David. And so this little place uh, where Joseph and Mary would go in the most important event in human history up to that point wouldn't be in Jerusalem, and it wouldn't be on Mount Sinai, and it wouldn't be any number of famous world places, but in a little town uh, called Bethlehem. To show you one more picture, here is a, an area underneath the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. This is the cave where they say uh, that uh, Mary gave birth. Um, you can be left to decide on your own whether you think that's true or not. Um, there are some people who are willing to, to uh, sell you tickets there if you want to go. <laughs> but, uh, but, but it's just one of those things that we don't know perfectly, but there are many who believe 
uh, that's the case. But Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, and so there's a way in which the census seems to be designed, perhaps with Jewish people in mind who hold heritage at a very high esteem, and so you have to go back to your family's town or your hometown in order to be registered, and Joseph, sure enough, takes Mary, and they're heading back to Bethlehem. Now, interestingly enough, there's a phrase in here that says, uh, because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, uh, there's, there's two views on what that means. Some believe that means that Joseph was a homeowner and from the lineage of David in Bethlehem. Now, that's pretty easily disputable because you say, well, if Joseph was a homeowner, whenever he showed up in Bethlehem, they wouldn't have gone to a stable or to a cave or to wherever that was with no room at the inn. So the house and lineage simply is two ways to say the same thing, that Joseph is from the line, the lineage of David, but, uh, but they, they come here. I, I, the second thing I've got on your sheet tonight, which I think is also really important, is this. You know, I believe with all my heart that the Bible points us to the fact that God chose Mary and Joseph. God chose Mary and Joseph. That oftentimes we see this way in which Mary is uniquely spoken to uh, by the Lord through an angel. When you read Luke's gospel, it's almost entirely from the focus of what Mary's interaction is with the angel. Joseph is mentioned in a very small way. Matthew's gospel, just the opposite. Mary is not mentioned from a really focal sort of point, but Joseph is the one that we get the interaction of the angel with Joseph and otherwise. And so, There are some who through the years have said, well, you know, Mary's really the more important person uh, that's here. And I I think we've got to be careful about that. I think God had a unique choosing not only of Mary, but also of Joseph. While Joseph's never mentioned in Jesus' adult ministry, from all we can tell, he had passed away by that time. It seems very clear that God had a plan not only for Mary, uh, but also for Joseph. Mary has a lot of words recorded that she spoke uh, in Luke's gospel. Um, In all the Bible put together, we don't get one word that Joseph ever says that's quoted. So whether he's the strong, silent type or what, I don't know. Um, But God records his actions for us because we needed to learn uh, from them. But we see this great way that God chose both Mary and Joseph. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child... And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, here, even with this being the main Christmas story that we think of, there is one verse given to the birth. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Really, one verse that has details for us about the birth, and then the narrative moves right in the other direction. And so we're left in a little bit with some questions about what exactly this must have been. That Joseph showed up at Bethlehem, the Motel 6 had turned the light off, it was no longer left on for them. There was no room at the inn. Now, as I mentioned before, there are some who believe that in this cave is where Mary gave birth to Joseph. It was very common in that area of the world. There were a lot of caves, so they became burial places as well as places to have stables and keep animals and that kind of thing. So it's possible that the place where Joseph and Mary ended up for the birth of Jesus was a cave. And that is where, perhaps surrounded by some animals, perhaps not, uh, that, uh, that, that Mary gave birth. You know, the word stable is actually never mentioned in, in the New Testament in referring to Jesus' birth. Uh, only the word manger gives us that 
key into that, that sort of sector of, of the area where, they, where there was a baby born. I don't know, uh, you know, I've gotten a chance to be in the room when my wife gave birth to four different children. I don't think there was ever a point where she said, you know what would make this day perfect? Livestock. <laughs> you know, hay, straw, if only we could get some of that in it. You know, you think about how that would have been a tough place. There's this beautiful song uh, by a man named Andrew Peterson who, um, who has just a tremendous Christmas album called Behold the Lamb of God. But there's this wonderful song called uh, Labor of Love that talks about Mary um, with no mother's hand to hold and noble Joseph by her side uh, that has a labor of love for the girl on the ground in the dark. Every beat of her beautiful heart was a labor of love. You know, we have this picturesque, the glow is coming down, and it must have been just a wonderful thing. It's even made it so far to say, well, away in a manger, this little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. You know, I bet it wasn't like that at all. There was crying probably from the Lord Jesus and probably from Mary and maybe from Joseph. That This was no doubt a difficult way to bring a child into the world, and yet it's what God ordained. You know, another school of thought is thinking that the place in which Mary and Joseph stayed and where the baby Jesus was ultimately born was in sort of the garage equivalent of homes in the ancient world. The room that's used here in uh, verse number, or excuse me, the word that's used here in verse number seven for the word in, I-N-N, is actually a, a word that means room often in the New Testament. When the upper room is described in the book of Acts, that's the word that's used. Uh, when the room for the Passover and the Last Supper, the Last Supper Passover is going to take place with the disciples, it's that word in Greek that's used. It's a different word than the parable of the Good Samaritan when it talks about an inn uh, that was being gone to. So it can mean an inn. What it also could possibly mean would be the guest room or the extra quarters in a home to where Mary and Joseph perhaps were not allowed either to be in a room of the home where they came to stay perhaps with distant family because as we know, Mary by everybody else was seen as someone who was an unwed mother. We don't want you in the main part of our house. Perhaps you can just go in here to the sort of animal garage area and you can have your baby there. There's some who believe that's what took place and that may very well be what happened. And so this pictures for you what that area would kind of look like. It was, it was kind of the garage equivalent of the home. The animals would be kept out there. It was away from the main part, of, but still sort of attached to the property for those who would have you know, this kind of level. Uh, this gives you an idea if you're, you're looking actually from the bed chamber that would be on top of this wall and then shooting down through that tunnel would go to the area where the animals were kept. And there's some who believe today that that's actually where Mary and Joseph were told either there's no room for you here or because of your situation you're not staying with the people but you can go out there and so imagine if even in Bethlehem even on the night where the very stars were declaring the glory of God and what was taking place even when the angels would speak to the shepherds out in the field imagine even with all of that the voices of either their fellow family members or others were saying, you're an unwed mother, you, you folks are betrothed, but this is not a good situation, y'all can't be in here, you gotta go out there. There's a level of mystery there, we, we don't know for sure. So it could have been a cave, could have been an actual stable, could have been this room that was part of the home. And here's what I love, a lot of places in Israel at the time had mangers made out of stone. Doesn't that feel good to just 
settle down into a stone manger. I've gotten to hear some interesting stories from some people with some age on them about what kind of stuff they were placed in. My favorite is I I knew a lady once, uh, she's with the Lord now, but she was born premature back when they didn't really know a whole lot to do for premature babies. And her parents took her home and they they actually uh, turned the oven on about as low as they could and they put her in there, you know, with the door open. And uh, she lived through it and so, uh, yeah. She was darker skinned than the rest of her, you know, brothers and sisters, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. She was a sweet lady, but that's the only person I'd ever heard that got set in the oven. I've heard other people, you know, well, my parents put me in the dresser drawer until I was old enough to move to a bed or, you know, all this kind of stuff. But I doubt too many of you had stone manger experiences. If you did, come tell me about it later. There's not a single wooden manger that survived from that time period. Uh, and so there could have been wooden mangers there, but it's, it's possible it also uh, was made of stone. And so here's the world in which the Son of God is born into to be the Savior of all humanity with no red carpet, no special accommodations. There was no room for them at the end. There was no place for them. You ever gotten a chance to go into a nice hotel and that door opens whenever we take our kids anywhere and they get a chance to stay in a hotel? They think that's the greatest thing in the world. You know, for some of you who've got kids, little kids, those of you who may be aspiring parents, others of you who've got grandkids, you know, I learned really early on, all you need for a great vacation is a hotel and an indoor pool. You know, you're sitting there paying for money for stuff during the day and you're having to drag your kids away from the indoor pool screaming and crying so you can go pay money for them to do something to have fun. Just leave them at the pool and let them have a good time, you know. And so, uh, but I've learned when they walk through that door first time and they see that hotel room, boy, they're just so excited. Those beds are made and it just looks like, you know, it's brand new, doesn't it? You walk in there and Joseph and Mary didn't have that experience in the least. Some of us drive by those ends on the side of the road and they look like something out of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, you know? I say, boy, I wouldn't want to stay there. Even those places might have been a better situation than where Joseph and Mary ended up. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. The Son of God come to earth. Verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. I like the King James there, it says, and they were sore afraid. I don't know exactly what sore afraid means, but I don't have to, do you? Because the language paints it so beautifully. They were sore afraid. Here's a picture of a shepherd out in Bethlehem some years ago. This is in the early 1900s on the hillside there. Here's a more recent uh, photo. Well, still in the early 1900s of shepherds out in their field by Bethlehem. This is what it had been like. Some that were on the sleeping shift and then the, the sheep that were starting to lay down and others that were keeping watch and making sure everything was all right. Just dark, dark out there, you know, starry sky, but other than that, no lights. Imagine what it was like when all of a sudden that angel's glory just shone around all of them and they were wondering what in the world was going on. And so the shepherds were there in their fields keeping watch over the flocks by night. And it's there that God chose to announce the birth of Jesus. Number three is this. Luke's account of Jesus' birth highlights that Jesus has come for all people. Luke's account of Jesus' birth highlights that Jesus has come for all people. Only Luke tells us of the shepherds. 
Pastor Brandon's been leading us through a study on Exodus on Sunday mornings, and you get a chance to hear the thoughts of the Egyptians, that all shepherds were abominations to the Egyptians. Even to the Israelites, shepherds were sometimes a little bit of those edgier, rougher kind of people. You know, the Bible speaks so much and so many good things about shepherds and what that means for us and what that means for, uh, for, for just the nature of God. We understand things that the Bible gives in that way. But the reality was that there was a wide spectrum of shepherds. Shepherds were in some ways sort of the truck drivers of the ancient world. Now, there's some wonderful truck drivers that I know and love, but I know there's a spectrum of truck drivers. Some of y'all might know a truck driver that you go, oh, well, I don't know. You know, sometimes it's attractive to folks to have a whole life on their own, on the road, off, you know, answering to nobody, interacting with nobody. And so you get this spectrum sometimes of what those folks are like. Any job can have that. Some of, somebody's going to come up to me afterwards and said, well, I know some preachers that I don't like to get. Well, you're probably, you're probably right. Not trying to say anything against truck drivers, just trying to say for the viewpoint of the time, shepherds weren't seen with the same kind of glow that we have tended to give them because of how much positive language the Bible dedicates to them. And so the shepherds that are out in the field, sort of the forgotten segment, maybe in some ways the rougher segment of society, and that's where Jesus' birth is announced. Have you ever seen It's a Wonderful Life? And Clarence ends up uh, in the, uh, with, with Jimmy Stewart there in, in uh, Nick's bar, and Jimmy Stewart's trying as hard as he can to make sure that Clarence doesn't say anything about being an angel, and he doesn't even want him saying anything spiritual and just saying, look, you don't talk about stuff like that around here. You ever been in a place where, you know, somebody's just saying, hey, look, you just, just don't, you know, don't, don't wear your, your Christianity on your sleeve too much. These just aren't that kind of people. Now, we see a great response by the shepherds. We see faith by the shepherds. We don't see anything here to point us to the fact that, the, that these shepherds perhaps were edgier people. But I, I think there might have been people here that unless the shepherds had been, had, unless God had come to them in this way, they wouldn't have been involved in it in any way. And so God chose to the farthest reaches to reach out and to say, I want you to know this message. And the same is true for us. You know, Jesus hasn't only come for people who look like us, who make the same amount of money as our families make, who have the same backgrounds and the same political views and the same this and the same that. We can categorize as many things as we want to. The reality is that Jesus has come for all people. And ministry gets tough sometimes when there's people who, you know, they, they don't necessarily... They're, they're not at a place where they feel receptive or it just feels kind of tough. You ever been in that scenario? You just want so bad to people to, to want Jesus and they just, they just don't. There's an old Russian novel. Did y'all enjoy our missionary last week? Uh, Sasha, what a great testimony, you know, he gave. A novel from that uh, part of the world, The Brothers Karametsov, if you've ever heard of that. Fyodor Dostoevsky writes uh, what some consider to be the greatest novel ever written. I'm not sure I'd say that. But there's a conversation between a, a lady and a monk as she just, she really wants to do something impactful spiritually to, for others. And I think it's a, something that rings true with us too. Sometimes, do you ever feel like, boy, I'd love to just do some great things for the Lord. And I'd love to do this and I'd love to do that. And she's going on and on about how she wants to serve the poor and, and wash the feet of the broken. And, and this is what she says. And do you know that I came with horror to the conclusion that if anything could dissipate my love for humanity, it would be ingratitude. In short, I'm a hired servant. I expect my payment at once. That is praise and the repayment of love with love. Otherwise, I'm incapable of loving anyone. You know what we're like? 
We're people who love to love people who love us back, don't we? And we love to love people who it's not going to be a long process or a long road. And we love to love people it's not going to create a difficulty or a mess or an uncomfortable situation. But the reality is often that we see this in the pages of Scripture as well. God is speaking down to humanity. And it takes a repeated voice and a repeated look and a repeated call to himself before they believe. The patient will of God, the culmination of all of Scripture up to this point that God extends an offer to a group of shepherds, and we don't know their spiritual background. But this is what the angels say. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Luke's account of Jesus' birth highlights that Jesus has come for all people. Number four, the message of Jesus is good news that brings great joy. The message of Jesus is good news that brings great joy. You know, I think for a lot of Christians, we struggle, and I put myself in this too, we struggle with thinking that God is natured like us. And we struggle with thinking that He holds grudges and that He has a kind of self-righteous stare and a self-righteous anger towards us that expects us to be like him when in reality the message of the gospel is good news of great joy because Jesus Christ has accomplished what God knew we could not accomplish and in that he has offered us hope that's real that God's love is real that as this passage goes on the pleasure of God is real because of who Jesus is and what he's done the message of Jesus is good news that brings great joy I think it's a great tragedy that oftentimes believers are some of the most down and frustrated and sad and wounded and critical. We don't always act like people who have good news and who are blessed with great joy. We all walk through things that are difficult and face challenging times. There's times where we have to ask for the Lord's joy and we have to ask for the Lord's strength to get through some certain things. But I think at times, if we're really honest, we'd say, you know what? One of Satan's greatest victories in my life is getting me to believe that God's so much like me that I could never have hope and I could never have joy. And that's just not true. The nature of who Jesus is, the nature of God's love for us, is that he's provided Jesus knowing every single thing about us and wanting us anyway to be with him in eternity forever if we'll just believe and submit to what God's given us through Christ. The angels give four aspects of Jesus just quickly in a statement. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Sort of four key things that kind of hone in on that sentence. The city of David, that hearkens to the fact that Jesus is a king. He's not only going to be born in the city of David, he's from the line of David. And not only that, he's going to be the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises made to David of the king that would sit on a throne forever and that would never end. Because even in Jesus' day, that promise had been broken in terms of the, the rulership of Israel. Forever with no end had been seen to say, well, what happened? Well, when Jesus was born, he fulfilled that promise to be king once and for all, forevermore. And so he was going to be king. Not only that, he was going to be a savior. A savior is someone who comes along when you're stuck in a hole and you can't get out and reaches down his arm and pulls you out. Or maybe it'd be more accurate to say Jesus is the one who got down in the hole and we got on his shoulders and he pushed us out while he 
you know, dealt with difficulty in that hole before conquering death and hell and the grave once and for all. That Jesus is a Savior. He's come to save. Jesus is Christ. He's the fulfillment of all the messianic promises. He's going to be the answer to every need. He's going to be the result of every plan. He's going to be the hero of the story that's been waiting for the dramatic entrance into the world to do exactly what the story's outline is set to accomplish. Jesus is the hero who has stepped in to be the one that we all needed, the promise answer uh, that we all so desperately needed. And then number four, Jesus is going to be Lord. Not simply someone to marvel at, not simply someone to admire, not simply someone to say, boy, wasn't that wonderful or didn't that just bless your heart? I love uh, Tony Evans. Some of you are familiar with him. He speaks about uh, in the book of Joshua where Joshua is inquiring of the Lord what to do next and a battle is about to take place. And he sees someone that some in the Old Testament, they, they sort of wrestle, was this an angel or was this what's you know, sometimes called a Christophany or a theophany? Was this a pre-incarnate Jesus that, uh, that Joshua meets? But as he comes to him, he says, hey, whose side are you on? Tony Evans says the answer of that man who was there that day wasn't that he'd come to take sides, but he'd come to take over. That, that Joshua finds out that this messenger of the Lord had come to say, you know, God is more powerful than any of the armies that you're facing. Likewise, Jesus hasn't come to take sides. He's come to take over. He hasn't come to be a part of whatever our schemes are and our agendas are, our clans and our tribes and whatever we think. He's not come to support and undergird where we want to go. He's come to be the Lord that we look to and the master of our lives. And so the good news of great joy is that King Jesus, our Savior, the answer to every promise has come so that when we surrender to him, he can take over. I don't know about you, but I sure would love for the Lord Jesus to run the show and not me. I sure would love for him to take the reins and not me. I sure would love for Jesus to be the one that's leading uh, all that's, that's taking place. The message of Jesus is good news that brings great joy I love this in verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, we've heard this our whole life, but you have to think the shepherds were sitting there going, uh, do what? They were from southern Bethlehem. I think that's what they said. <laughs> None of them asked, uh, well, what will he be wearing or what color are the swaddling cloths? Okay, lying in a manger. Yep, we'll find him. He'll be the only baby in Bethlehem lying in a manger tonight. We can guarantee that. Okay. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Number five, and don't miss this, the pleasure of God is now possible through Jesus. The pleasure of God is now possible through Jesus. I have a pastor friend who, he, he doesn't like singing a whole lot. He's not, he's not one of those musical pastors. He, he, he just likes that part where we get done with the singing and we can get to the preaching. Some of y'all in here might be like that too. There might be others of you in here that say, well, I just put up with the preaching so I can have the singing. But uh, he doesn't care too much for music. And he says, you know what? We never see in the Bible that the angels sang. You know, sometimes we sort of interpret this passage that they sang maybe because we've seen it 
you know, uh, dramatized in that way or whatever, but from best we can tell, they spoke this. They were praising God. Might have been some musical quality to it, but they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He's pleased. Now, the King James translation, uh, good news, uh, let's see, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men doesn't quite catch the inflection of the Hebrew here that there's this distinction to say, or the Greek, excuse me, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Or another translation puts it this way, uh, among whom his favor rests. That there's a caveat to God's pleasure. It's not that upon Jesus' birth, there was a universal salvation that came to all people regardless of whether they were willing to believe or submit to Jesus at all. That wasn't the hope of the gospel. But the hope of the gospel was that because of Jesus Christ coming to earth, his sinless life being lived and his obedient death and resurrection, that through that, the pleasure of God could be upon mankind because of Jesus Christ. So when you look at this verse, don't miss this and think, well, I sure hope I can act good enough to be one of those people on whom God's pleasure, God's favor rests. Let me go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. You can't do it. The pleasure of God is only going to come when Jesus Christ's righteousness covers who we are in faith and surrendering to Him. And so Jesus has made a way by which God could be pleased with us. Our sins were so great that from the greatest to the least of us, we deserved an eternity apart from God. And Christ's obedience was so wonderful that in a single stroke of our belief in Him, His righteousness has now covered that abominable stain in all of our hearts and lives when we've trusted in Him. And so the pleasure of God you know, I've believed in the Lord for a long time. I've, I've known, you know, I, I've, my whole life. I don't, I don't, my parents used to say I had a drug problem when I was a kid. They drug me to church on Sunday. They drug me to church on Wednesday. They drug me to church for every other time I could be there. As long as I've been alive, I've known the, the message of the Lord Jesus. I came to faith at an early age, you know, and I, I was kind of in that background. Some of y'all might have been there too, where every week I got saved whether I needed it or not because I wasn't quite sure it took, you know. And the Lord had to grow me, and the Lord still had to grow me, and the Lord's still working on me. And can I tell you, I've been in ministry for 17 years, and I still catch myself thinking sometimes, I just, I don't know what God's going to say to me when I stand before Him someday. I, I just don't know. I hope I can be good enough. I hope I can do what He's calling me to and be faithful enough. And to some extent, those kind of thoughts are right in our hearts and lives. But I'm constantly drawn back to this need to remember that it's only the work of Jesus Christ that God can be pleased in. And in that is where our hope is found. We will someday stand before, as believers, the Lord and give an account of what's done. But the beautiful words of Romans 8, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Becomes the beautiful refrain that our lives make all the difference whether or not Jesus Christ is at the forefront. The pleasure of God is now possible through Jesus. The angels went away from them into heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I've seen this dramatized or otherwise, the angels are in heaven, you know, they all appear and they start to sing or they speak out from heaven and then, you know, then they're gone. It seems to be the most natural reading of the passage that the angels actually appeared in, around the shepherds there on the ground, and then they depart and go into heaven from there. 
The angels went away from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now, wonder used there doesn't mean wondered the way we'd wonder is what that person just told me about the fish they caught last weekend, is that actually true? Not that kind of wonder. Not, I wonder whether I'm going to believe that or not. No, that's not the word that's used. The word that's used there is a wonder as in awe and amazement. That it caused a sense of wonder among the people who heard what God had done. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Number six, and the last thing I've got for you tonight, God at work creates wonder and worship in his people. God at work creates wonder and worship in his people. We may not get a chance to see a field or a sky full of angels. We may not get a chance to have the miraculous things that we read about in the passage tonight. That was a unique experience for some few in history at different points of the Bible narrative. But for us, we may go our whole life without a supernatural, what we might call a supernatural experience. And yet the supernatural work of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives is just as real because the Holy Spirit is always at work, always moving. And there'll be moments, if we're honest, we'll look back on our life and we'll say, I know that was God there. God was the one who got me through that. God was the one that was leading when I didn't know what to do. God was the one that carried me when I didn't have the strength to do this or do that. You know, all that time I didn't know why this happened, but now looking backwards, at least for this part, I understand that God was working in this way, not that way. You know, the work of God in our life and in our hearts will move us to wonder and to worship. And so the shepherds worship. Mary worships. That little letter A that I've got there for you without even a B to go with it, the last point tonight, sometimes worship is all God wants from us. Sometimes worship is all God wants from us. Dennis Swanberg, who's a Christian comedian, um, tells a, a humorous story. Pastor Brandon and I have, have joked about this some. We're both, you know, Dennis Swanberg fans. Some of you might know his name from a little bit back in the past, but Dennis says, you know, some of my friends from other Christian denominations, they give up things for Lent or for other things. Baptists take on more projects for God. And I have found that to be true in my life, you know. As Baptists, we sort of tend to think busyness is the answer. And there's times in our life, if we're not careful, we're always constantly thinking, okay, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Maybe this means I do that. Maybe I do this. Maybe this, 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 whatever it is. Baptists can get busy like nobody else in just sort of getting their calendar filled up, getting activities done, often wonderful things. But if we're not careful, we'll err so hard on the side of busyness that we'll miss what God's wanting to do. And sometimes what God wants from us is not our activity, but our worship. You know, there's things in our hearts and in lives that the farthest God wants to take us is for us to realize you're not in charge, I am. You're not what's ultimate, 
I am. And again and again, God's drawing us to know his heart, take joy in him, and to worship him for who he is and what he's done. And sometimes that's as far as the Lord takes us and what he wants from us. And that's what we see here with Mary. You know, imagine this, ladies in the room, those of you who've given birth before, I know uh, getting a chance to, to walk through that you know, to some extent with my wife, there was very rare that when she'd given birth that day, she said, you know what, let's have some friends over here tonight in this, uh, this room. <laughs> Shepherds started showing up. Now we do know the wise men came later. They weren't there that night, but imagine you got all these, they got other people there, unnamed crowd that's wondering at what's going on. And then these shepherds are showing up and you got to think Mary's looking over there going, Joseph, get these people out of this room. I'm tired. I had a baby today. I don't want to have them here. Can I just get a little bit of sleep? But she doesn't do that. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. There's a word in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, it's often used, Selah. Some of you have seen that before. It's a little bit of a mystery word, but most believe that means meditate on this. There's a way in which we're called to pause and to really reflect and meditate on the truth of what we just read. Take a moment with this. Meditate on what's just been said. Mary does just that. She has a Selah moment there. Even in a cave or a garage-type room or somewhere like a stable, she treasures these things knowing that the Lord's at work and they affect her heart. And her movement to worship was just the right move. May it be for us as well where the Lord would call us to remember, to recognize who he is, and to realize the incredible truth that because of the Lord Jesus, the pleasure of God can be upon us through his righteousness when we trust him and know him in faith and believe. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your mercy, your strength, your power, your goodness. Thank you, Father, for good news of great joy for all people. And so, Lord, for the areas where we would be called to obey, would you help us? Would you make clear the path? Lord, for the areas where we need to ponder and treasure and worship and wonder, would you allow us to meditate on this, to take a pause, to recognize who you are, what you've done, what that means for us. Lord, thank you for the message of Jesus coming to earth on our behalf, the king who had come to be born in a lowly place, in a tiny town, to a couple with no uh, point of reference to exalt themselves. So Lord, may the humility of the Lord Jesus Draw us in. May we marvel and worship and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.